Welcome to the biggest thing to hit the financial advisory ESG community, environmental, social, and governance. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, CHSE Wealth Advisor. With over 25 years advisory experience, I've been advising clients so they can make a positive global impact. Hello and welcome to the ESG Players Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kavaznik, and this week we'll be talking with the amazing April Rust. April is one of the Minnesota DNR's top educators in aquatic invasive species. Hello and welcome, April. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's so great to have you here. Uh, one of the things that we deal with with our clientele all the time is the environmental uh, piece of the ESG equation. And you happen to have an amazing background in the water and water cleanliness and environmental. Uh, can you tell uh, me a little bit about maybe your history of what you've done in that area so our listeners can understand a little bit? Sure, be glad to. Uh, I have, uh, like you said, I work for the Department of Natural Resources, and I've worked here now for uh, a little over 18 years. Uh, the bulk of that time, I ran a program where I taught people about water, just all aspects of water, water quality, um, the science of water, how we use water, just a ton about water, uh, and that was mostly focused on working with educators. So could be classroom teachers or folks that are working with um, public presentations, just all aspects of, of water education. And then about five years ago, I uh, stepped into a new role here, and now I educate about aquatic invasive species, which are the uh, plants and animals that uh, have come from another part of the country or another country into the into Minnesota, and um, for whatever combination of reasons, this handful of species just are so well adapted to the local lake or river that they take over and make problems for us uh, and for the animals and plants that already live there. So now, the last uh, few years, my focus is on uh, teaching about that and about the the laws and. Um, and best practices that surround aquatic invasives here in Minnesota. So when I when I heard you tell me that, the first thing that kind of came to my mind was I was thinking, what does clean water and invasive species have to do with each other anyways? Because <laughs> if we have water, isn't it already accessible? Could you share with our listeners what the connection and how important that is? Well, that... When you talk to a water scientist or somebody who's teaching about, about water and they say water quality, that generally has a very specific uh, definition. And they're really talking about um, the chemistry of the water and the makeup of the water and the, uh, the clarity of the water and all these different elements about water um, that don't traditionally include aquatic invasive species. But if you back up a step further and talk about how you or I would say just in every day, what's the quality of, you know, whatever, uh, well, quality of the lake, and you're looking at it broadly, it would then also, it could include uh, invasive species because as soon as you have an established population of any invasive, let's say zebra mussels, those are kind of the poster child, the, the best known invasive um, here in Minnesota, then it really makes a huge impact on the quality of the lake or the river, um, whether or not it's making chemical changes or, uh, although in, their, in the case of zebra mussels, it does actually, they do impact the clarity. They improve the clarity of the water as an initial byproduct of their establishment. And then uh, it causes a chain of, or tends to cause a chain reaction of plants growing more and then dying off more and then possibly creating more algae blooms too. So 
that's a, a really quick example of um, some of the challenges with talking about invasive species is that they're, um, the impacts are are so holistic. They they have the tendency to change the system, the lake or the river, from the base of the food chain up. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of complicated um, interactions there, and it makes a lot of answers, like general answers, harder to, to say. Um, I, I talk with our our uh, invertebrate biologist, who's the, our zebra mussel guy here, and ask lots of questions that I get from folks while I'm teaching. And they're usually very common sense questions like, what should I expect in my lake now that zebra mussels are here? And you can give some general examples, but, um, but a lot of times the answer is, well, it depends because there's so many variables in, in each situation. But at any rate, so... Um, I don't know if I, I tend to ramble and no, get like onto that. a little That's side awesome. notes, so I don't know if I fully answered your question, but... Uh. Um, the more information, I think, the better, because it's kind of hard for a layperson like me to, like you said, decide how deep to go and understand it if it gets too deep. You know, so like I live over in St. Paul and we have the Mississippi River and we're hearing a lot about the, like Asian carp and uh, the lock and dams and the zebra. Right. So, yeah, what would be a generalization? How do we manage to eliminate the invasive species or control the invasive species or right? what is the techniques that we use or tactics? It's a really great question, and um, it's going to be somewhat of a long answer. Um, I'll just warn you, but uh, but the the simple answer to that is, and how we manage invasive species is it's two parts. The simple the simple lay phrase that I use all the time is that there is not a silver bullet that magically can eradicate an invasive species from a lake or river without damaging. I mean, there are there are chemical ways that you could kill off everything that lives in a lake, but you can't selectively pick them at this stage of the game. There isn't anything successful yet, um, but there are some really interesting tools and some very interesting research, and a few, there, are, there is one success story I can think of off the top of my head that um, gives uh, some hope for managing established populations in a lake or a river. So that's in very general terms. But I do like people to get the idea that um, while we're looking for while we're looking for resource management tools to help control um, uh, the species that are established, I, I don't hold your breath on a silver bullet where it's magically mm -hmm. going to undo what's already been done is kind of the approach I like to take because really the approach that we take, and when I say we, I, I don't mean just the DNR, but all of the bus or businesses, the organizations that are working towards um, um, slowing the spread or stopping the spread of invasive species, and there's, there's lots of lots of different parties involved, but we're really focused on stopping them and slowing them down and managing the ones that are already established. The whole idea of eradication is a, that's not in the picture at this stage. We have a state plan for invasive species, and I'm speaking to, to the aquatic species. There's also a lot of terrestrial or land-based species as well, um, and that's a whole different, whole different conversation. But on the aquatic side of things, in our state plan, we are um, the goals for the whole state are to prevent the introduction of any new invasive species to Minnesota. So if it's not here already, let's keep it out, and then to prevent the spread of the invasives that are here from 
and when I say spread, it's really the overland spread. If you've got a, a creek and a lake or a couple of chain of lakes that are connected, we're not out there establishing strong barriers to prevent something from flowing downstream in a small connected um, chain of lakes. That's just the, you know, it's the structure and that would be, um, that would be difficult, if not impossible and, and costly to try to do. So, but the overland uh, spread is what we can control. And matter of fact, the overland spread follows people. So mm-hmm. none of the aquatic invasives in Minnesota are able to hop from one lake overland to another lake without our help. Uh, you mentioned uh, invasive carp. They're actually, people talk about invasive carp a lot and as if it's one because that's oftentimes how it's talked about. You'll hear Asian carp or invasive carp. And it's really four different types of carp species. Um, and the two that we're really looking at are big head um, and uh, wait, grass black, big head and Silver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot the, the flashy one, the one you'll see videos of them jumping out of the water. Right. Those are silver carp. Um, but at any rate, uh, so there are ways that we are trying to preemptively keep carp from getting uh, further up the system, the Mississippi system, than, than uh, they are already. And the, the, if you live, you said, um, mentioned the lock and dam, and uh, federally that was closed. Uh, just uh, the Minneapolis one, and I'm trying to remember Lock and Dam. I don't know if it's one or two, or it's pretty low up. The St. Anthony Maine one, right? The St. Anthony one? Yes, yeah. it is. Okay. Yep. And they closed that in 2015. That's a federal decision, not not ours um, here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But that is was a huge, a huge um, benefit because the fish can't physically move further north um, now that that's shut, unless people were to carry them somehow, you know, in a mm-hmm. bait bucket or whatnot. Uh, so at any rate, in Minnesota, though, the, the real plan is that we prevent the spread anywhere, prevent any new species from getting here, and then we try and manage what's here to reduce the impacts. Um, and, you know, one thing, is, we, we do a really good job at DNR about talking about the impacts of invasives and, and, and how to follow some simple steps to prevent the spread. But we also do a really good job of announcing when a new water body has um, zebra mussels or whatnot. So the impression is that everything has, everything's infested, everything's got zebra mussels and, and milfoil and, and what have you. And that's actually not the case, not to dismiss the seriousness of it. And if it's your lake that that um, gets zebra mussels or milfoil or curly leaf pondweed or what have you, that's one lake or river too many. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I should just ask you, what would you guess? What percent do you think of our lakes and rivers have um, invasive species? We'd say 5 to 10%. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's right in the ballpark. Um, and, but a lot of times if people, especially people are paying attention or it's their lake or river that they've noticed or their region of the state has had a higher, um, uh, influx of, of invasive species, people think it's like the opposite of that, 75 to 95%. And, and that's not the case. Now, again, a lot of our destination lakes, do have um, invasives, and so it's not it's not fair to say that it's not serious because it's not everywhere. However, just the scale of it is not often is it's not as as widespread as what people um, mm-hmm. think because we've done a really good job of getting the word out, and people really are passionate here in Minnesota about their lakes and their rivers, and pay a lot of attention to it. So, um, but that's the key the key strategy is preventing anything that's here, and then working on 
ways to uh, manage uh, manage what we've got already. And that could be um, if your lake has Eurasian watermill foil, there are 300 and some lakes um, with Eurasian watermill foil in Minnesota. Doing um, the DNR will permit a lake association or a group to chemically treat and remove some of the milfoil in uh, parts of the lake where people to allow for boat traffic or things like that. So there can be management for recreation use. And then also um, we're doing a lot of cooperation with researchers uh, at the University of Minnesota to try and see are there chemical or other means that we could uh, keep, keep zebra mussels um, at bay uh, or maybe maybe there is a way that we could eradicate them from a water body if we catch the infestation soon enough, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of fascinating research going on about um, the plants and animals themselves and then also about all of us and how how we move our equipment around and what are better ways to lower the risk of spreading things from place to place. In a nutshell, what, what we always tell, tell folks um, – the, the simplest message of all when, when you're talking about aquatic invasive species is that clean, drain, dry message that you'll see on the billboards when you're heading to the cabin, um, that you clean off your gear. It doesn't mean it has to be sparkly clean, but you take off the mud and the plants, the plants themselves. You're not allowed to, uh, by state law, transport aquatic plants. And whether they're invasive or not, the law just makes it simple. Like you see aquatic plant hanging off your um, your boat, your trailer, your whatever, you pull them off before you leave the access if you're going that way or before you leave the lake or wherever you're at. And um, so you, you clean off stuff, you drain any water. There are a couple species um, in particular that you can't see, like uh, zebra mussels when they're first week or two and they're in their larval or their little baby stage. Mm-hmm. You can't see them with her. You need a uh, telescope or a telescope. <laughs> you need a microscope to be able to see them. And um, and so that's why we have the drain plug law that says drain your water before you start moving your boat around. So if you've got um, a ballast tank in your boat, if you've got a big wake boat and you've got all that water to help it balance out, or if you've got a, a live well for fish um, or a bait bucket, you drain all that before you go to another lake or water. What seems like to me pretty common sense once mm-hmm. once you get used to the new habits, they're not the way you might have done it when you were growing up or the way your grandpa taught you when you went out fishing, but they're not too hard to do. So you clean, you drain, and ideally you dry. Um, if you're moving any kind of equipment and you're going to another lake or river, if you can, if, if you don't have to go right away and you're planning another trip next weekend, if it can sit out and dry out, that's a good insurance policy. Um, and then in the case of docks or lifts, there is a uh, there's a law around dry time for docks and lifts. So if uh, you're going to put them in a new lake or river, you have to have them sit out for 21 days to dry. That actually is state law, mm-hmm. and it's all based. That one's based completely around zebra mussels because once they, if they get established inside tubes, you know, mm-hmm. some some lakes, some dock posts are 10 feet tall. If they if you've got a really mucky bottom lake and they sink in there, and it's it's so hard to ensure that all the zebra mussels in there wouldn't be alive. Um, and so if it's out 21 days, there's no way even the biggest, baddest, strongest zebra mussel can't survive out of water for three weeks. Um, the research shows one to two weeks, depending on the, the conditions um, that some of the, sure. the larger ones can make it. So at any rate, so that's yeah. the basic message. I'm filling it in with a lot of sure. detail, but yep. clean, dry, dry if you've got... Um, extra bait, you dispose of that. It um, seems so obvious people would want to support that. What is the economic 
negatives. Like, are businesses losing money because the river's closed? Or are businesses losing money because you have to inspect every boat? What is the financial consequences? Well, those are those are great questions. Um, there, you can look at the finances of it different ways. Um, I'll tell you, in state statute, uh, we uh, the DNR runs a lot of watercraft inspection, which if you go to public water accesses, you may be quite familiar with. But for any of your listeners that haven't gone through that, there are folks that are um, at the access that if they're at the one you're as you're going in or out, um, they ask you a series of questions and they um, they're a lot of what they do is educational, where they educate the boater and walk around the boat with with the, the boater and show them how to inspect and then um, help them remove stuff, um, show them how and, and where to remove stuff. And if they need it, they we have um, a smaller set of inspectors with uh, pressure washer with decontamination units where they can actually help remove more challenging um um, situations where you've got attached zebra muscles or something that takes scraping and pressure washing to, to take care of. Um, so, but for that program, we are in statute. It requires that, uh, that we do not cause an undue, um, that we don't take too long and that we don't get in the way of recreation. And so we, uh, we take that, well, of course, I was going to say we take it hard, but we have to do it. It's a state statute. So in our, our design, um, we our watercraft inspection program makes sure that they have, uh, if, if it's a really busy day and they got a long backlog of stuff, they send folks with a, a permit to another spot to get them deconned, um, keep things moving along. And the average inspection takes two to three minutes and some a little bit longer. And once in a while, there'll be some complex equipment that takes a lot longer. So is it anything other than just a time that is affected? I mean, is it the people in our agriculture industry complaining or being unhappy? Or is it not really impacting them that harshly? Um, there are impacts for um, any any company that uses water and has intake and outtake, you know, like there, there are a lot of potential impacts of, in, in the case of zebra mussels, um, where they clog piping. So if you're at a water treatment plant or any, well, like I said, any company that pulls water in for their work and pushes it back out, generally speaking on rivers in our state, with the exception of uh, Lake Superior would be the other one that would have uh, on, on the lakefront. Um, and those um, those companies do use chemical and other means to treat zebra mussels and keep their pipes uh, functional. That's a different uh, different case. And every other, all the decontamination that the state recommends outside of that um, unique instance is all just hot water and scraping and not a lot of chemical stuff because you don't need it. Uh, Ten seconds of time kills a zebra mussel um, if you have 140 degree water. Right. So at any rate, um, so the there is there's potential economics there um, that's borne by the company uh, that's dealing with it. It's not uh, in my experience. It hasn't been super widespread in Minnesota. If you look at states further east, uh, it's a bigger uh, a bigger cost. There are other costs though. Looking at other invasive species, uh, a classic one. Um, it's the um, um, sea lamprey is one that you may may have heard of uh, mm. that. Came in through the Great Lakes, and they're they're. I, I mean, if you've ever seen pictures of them, they look like an eel kind of, and they've got this creepy looking mouth with teeth on it, and they attach. They're a parasite. They attach to fish 
and, um, you know, like a tick would attach to you or me, that sort of a, a relationship. And so uh, we have native lamprey here in Minnesota that are balanced and, you know, they evolved here with all the fish and, and uh, with all the, the whole system in place so that they have checks and balances and they don't boom or bust. They just do their thing. Then you get, we got the sea lamprey in that, um, out-competed, um, and nothing was eating them, and they out-reproduced. All the, the, the magical markers of any invasive species, they, they just are species out of place that, for a combination of reasons, are succeeding immensely, way, way more successfully than everything else around them, and that's why they become invasive. Um, they don't have a superpower. Uh, they just happen to have the right, the right bundle of regular biological adaptations that in this location is making them Superman or excellent. But the lamprey is a good example where for decades we were, they were um, completely killing off the lake trout industry, which is a pretty big fishery. And you know, you don't often think about that, but if you go up to Duluth and you want to have yummy lake trout, Mm -hmm. um, that's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a big, it's a big industry in Minnesota. And uh, so at any rate, and and in the Great Lakes, not just here in our state. And so all of the land grant universities, especially around the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes states work, have worked for decades and researched to try and figure out, is there a way that we could keep this in check? And that's, this is one of the success stories in the invasives world. Um, there's a lamprocyte, a very specific um, treatment for the sea lamprey that is is done every year, and it doesn't greatly impact the rest of the system, so that it's not causing more harm. But it keeps the lamp the sea lampreys in check at about 10% of population, and the lake trout population went way back up and is is now mm-hmm. successful. So that's an example of. Um, one economic impact, that's and that's—it's not. Uh, it took. We always hear negatives, and it seems like that's a nice story. It is a nice. We, story. we always hear about it, companies uh, being the angry. The reason I thought about it, it is—it is nice to to hear of a a good example of success in yes. this case. But it also comes with a price tag. So on the economic mm-hmm. side, we have to pay to maintain that if we want the fishery in place. I mean, we're the ones that bring these things, whether it's intentional or not. We're humans are really the carrier. We're the ones hauling <laughs> the stuff around right. and putting it where it, it's not meant to be put naturally, right. and <laughs> and then we have to pick up the the pieces mm-hmm. and try and figure it out um, if we don't want the repercussions of, of right. some of these species in the places they're at. But at any rate, so that is a nice a nice example, and that's one that we hope in the case of zebra mussels that we can emulate. There's some really interesting research going on on. Um, um, a side, so a very specific um, uh, treatment for zebra mussels that's based on natural um, viruses that only mollusk species would have. Uh, of course, we don't. It's it's a, a slow process to research and test something out and make sure that there aren't unintended consequences to the other species in the lake, because that's the last thing we don't want to kill off all the native mussels. Right. Right. They do. Well, they're, the, they're one of the things that keep our waters clean. want to have you give me just five bullet points that you think people in the community should be aware of and do to help combat this invasive species, right? Just like the bullet point, just like these are the yep. five things if everyone would just start doing or continue to do, we could mm-hmm. really have an impact as individuals in the community. I'd say the, the top things that everyone should be doing 
to prevent the spread of aquatic invasive species are back to our taglines. You clean off your equipment every time, everywhere, clean it off. Uh, you drain your water. Never transport water around from place to place in Minnesota. Um, you dispose of any unwanted bait. Don't haul that around. Even earthworms, which actually are invasive. Surprise, surprise. Um, not an aquatic one, but there are no native earthworms in Minnesota, believe it or not. Um, so dispose of unwanted bait and uh, dry out your equipment be between sites, especially if you're moving a dock to a new lake or river, let that sucker sit out for 21 days. And you don't want to be that guy that brings zebra mussels or another invasive to your lake or your river. Um, and then I guess the other thing I would say is that the vast majority of people have gotten the message since our laws changed in 2012. That's when a lot of these laws went into place. And, um, Minnesotans care about their lakes and rivers. We love being outside generally, or at least looking at them, if not, if not playing in them. And uh, it's important, I think, for everybody to learn a little bit about them. You don't need to be a biologist, but learn a little bit about your lake or your river, what lives in it, what should be there, and what shouldn't be there, so that when you're out recreating, when you're enjoying it, if you see something that's out of place, call us, call the DNR. We don't care if it's a false alarm and it's just some native snail that we had, that you hadn't seen before. Call us and let us know. You can always bag a sample of anything and bring it to the DNR office if you're concerned about it possibly being invasive. Um, normally you can't transport invasives, but in this case you totally can. And I encourage you to, or snap a photo of it and contact your local office and, um, because we we just we can't be on, on on all the water bodies. There's this is a land of 11,842 lakes and like 6,500 rivers. So uh, there's a lot more Minnesotans out there enjoying that and seeing the water, and we really rely on people coming to us and letting us know when they see something that looks awry. April, we just really can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to talk with us and you gave us an amazing amount of information that so many people are going to be able to, to learn from, which is awesome. How can people get in touch with you if they need questions answered or need your assistance? Um, you can add my phone number and, and email to the, the text yep. of this. Otherwise, okay. they can reach me um, at the DNR website, which is mndnr.gov. And if you just go to invasives, there's there's a list of invasive contacts there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, April. This has been awesome. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. If you have any questions, please contact Jonathan Kavaznik at jkavaznik, that's K-V-A-S-N-I-K, at securitiesamerica.com. ESG Players Podcast can be found on iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and many other platforms through the Backroom Studios. That's Backroom Studios, S-T-E-W-D-I-O-S. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, Jonathan B. Kovacnik, CHFC, registered representative, advisory services offered through Securities America Advisories, Inc., Cherokee Investment Services, Bank Cherokee, and Securities America are separate companies, not FDIC insured, no bank guarantees, may lose value, not insured by any government agency. Agency, not bank deposits.
much, April. This has been awesome. Thanks. You too. Take care. Take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. If you have any questions, please contact Jonathan Kavaznik at jkavaznik, that's K-V-A-S-N-I-K, at securitiesamerica.com. ESG Players Podcast can be found on iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and many other platforms through the Backroom Studios. That's Backroom Studios, S-T-E-W-D-I-O-S. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC, Jonathan B. Kovacnik, CHFC, Registered Representative, Advisory Services offered through Securities America Advisories, Inc. Cherokee Investment Services, Bank Cherokee and Securities America are separate companies, not FDIC insured, no bank guarantees, may lose value, not insured by any government agency, not bank deposits.